Amen. Let's look to the Lord and ask God's blessing on our service this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we're just so thankful for who you are and we're thankful for your precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have in and through him. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd bless the service today, that you'd bless in our midst. We'd sense your purpose being accomplished. Be with those who are watching on the live stream as well. And we ask and pray, Lord, that when we leave this place, we've, we would sense that you've accomplished your purpose for us being here today. For we ask all this now in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, thanks. You can be seated. We serve a great God, don't we? And I want to speak to you today about His kingdom power. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew. And uh, Matthew chapter 9 is where we're going to start. I just want to give you a, a little bit of a heads up. Sometimes we'll take a small passage of Scripture and say a whole lot about it. Um, and then sometimes we'll take a larger passage of Scripture and we'll point out the highlights through it. And really, the theme of our study through the book of Matthew is kingdom living. And we haven't been going verse by verse through every single part of Matthew. But what I, my goal is over the, to, to finish this over the next few months is to really survey the entire book of Matthew and just to see these principles of God's kingdom and how they, how they shine throughout the book. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm actually going to look at quite a few, uh, a, a, quite a large portion of Scripture. We won't read all of it. We'll move through it. And then at the end, we'll just focus in on a smaller part. Um, but you'll, you'll figure it out as we go. So just quick background, because it's been a few weeks. We took a little bit of a break during Christmas to focus in on the Matthew passages about the Christmas story. And so where we left off was we had finished the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus moved, uh, or Matthew records three chapters of the heart of Jesus' teaching. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are that Sermon on the Mount. And all of the principles that Jesus wants to get across really are found in that sermon. It's, it's amazing. And so we took several weeks to do that. Now, in chapters 8 and 9, the, the, uh, the theme of it changes a little bit. You'll still see the kingdom at the core, but what you're going to see is that Matthew moves from what Jesus taught about to some of the acts and the miracles that Jesus performed. And so part of my hope in this series is that you're seeing that, that the book of Matthew serves a purpose. It's not just a random collection of things Jesus did, but it's all directing our attention towards specific aspects of who Jesus is. And then why? Well, it's so that we can know him more and that we can worship him better and that our lives can be more enriched through our relationship with him. So what's happening now is we see these acts and these miracles, and you're going to see that over and over again, what is demonstrated is the great power of Jesus, that he has tremendous power. Now, you're going to see the word power a few times. I want you to notice with me. Let's begin by reading Matthew 9 and verses 6 through 8. So, just to put this in, this is kind of like a movie or a television episode where we step into the middle of the action, and then by the end, we're going to figure out exactly what is, what is happening here. So, we're stepping right into the action, and there's a tense scene that we walk into. And 
On the bed is a young man who is a paralytic. He cannot walk. He's stuck in his bed and he desperately wants to be healed by Jesus. And then there's a whole crowd of people surrounding Jesus and they're thinking, what is he going to do next? What is the next moment? So we step into this really tense scene because there's another group of people and they are the scribes. The scribes are not fans of Jesus at all. And so one group is waiting with great anticipation. The other group is casting judgmental eyes on Jesus. And I want you to see what happens in this moment. Matthew 9, 6 through 8. But, Jesus speaking now, he looks right at his critics. He looks right at the scribes. And he says, but that ye may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he says to the sick, so now he, he redirects his attention. He looks at the group and he says, I want you to know that I have the power to forgive sins. And he turns his direction to the young man on the bed and he says to him, arise, take up thy bed and go into thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now look at verse 8. But when the multitudes saw it, they marveled. They marveled. All right, we did this a few weeks ago. Let's see. if I, We've done this twice now. I need you to give me a marvel. You're going to participate with me this morning, hopefully. Everybody give me a marveled word. Because this is, this is you know, the, the older English here, they marveled, right? But what did they, so everybody, move it up, move it up now to 2024, first Sunday 2024. If there was something that you marveled at, your expression would be what? One, two, three. Wow. All right. Something like that. We'll take it. Wow. They were astonished. They marveled at what? They marveled and they glorified God which had given such, underline it, circle it, highlight it, take a picture of it, whatever you got to do, what's the word, given such power to men. Power to men. Now, this word power is interesting. If you study the New Testament, you'll find there are two, two Greek words, at least, that are primarily used for power. Now, often in the New Testament writings, we are, it's the word dunamis, where, we're, we're, where we get dynamite from. And a lot of times the Holy Spirit gave them that kind of power. But the word power that you read here is not that word power. And in fact, depending on what translation you use, it would, it's either translated often power or it's translated authority. This is the power that refers to rule and authority. We understand that kind of power, don't we? I mean, it's displayed all around us regularly. This is the power that one person would have over another. The authority, the rule, the dominion. Power. People are impressed by power, aren't they? I mean, they just are. If a powerful person, and you just, I mean, if a powerful person walked in the room right now, you would take notice. You'd be, probably have all kinds of different reactions. But uh, if a powerful person, we'll leave all the politicians out of it because it's about to get really tense over the next few months. We'll leave all the political power out of it. 
But if a powerful person like Oprah Winfrey, that's a powerful person, wouldn't you say? A different kind of power. Maybe not official rule, but somebody that has power and influence over other people. If she walked in the room, there would be different reactions. A powerful person like Bill Gates were to come in. Or Elon Musk were to come in the room. These are people of power and influence. Taylor Swift. If she were to walk, I knew I'd wake you up off with that one right there. These are, all, these are all powerful people in some way or another. Then, Vladimir Putin. Okay? Powerful person in a different way. You have different reactions to different types of power, but people are drawn or repelled to or from, uh, from or to, whatever. I got my prepositions wrong, but to the power. People sometimes gravitate toward power. You see this in the workplace. Somebody's given a little bit of power and authority, and people will become their friends. You see, all of these, we have this interesting dynamic for power because at our core, in our natural pre-Christian state, human beings desire a measure of power. In fact, if you know the Bible, some of you might be on a new journey reading through the Bible this year, and um, I wish you Godspeed if you're going to make that endeavor. But if you're back in the book of Genesis this January, you'd read about Adam and Eve. And what did, what did the serpent basically say to Eve? If we could paraphrase it, if you eat the fruit, you're going to have power. You're going to have power. And it's at the core of who we are. Power is a, is a wonderful thing, but it's also a dangerous thing. It was Lord Acton who said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Power is sometimes abused. Power can be an incredible source for good when it is in the right hands. So with all of that, I want you now to think about Jesus, who had all power. Could you imagine a person having all power? Can you imagine a human being having all power? Would you love that human being or would you greatly fear that human being? You'd be terrified of them. Our whole system of government in America was designed to keep people from consolidating too much power. But now we have Jesus. Now we look to Jesus who in one human being, who is also a divine being, in Jesus is all power. And there is no one better to have that kind of power, who will only use his power for the glory of God and for our good. Jesus power. This is one of the things that, and, and this isn't really the thrust of the message, but this is one of the things that makes Jesus and the Christian message so unique. So unique. Because who else could be entrusted? What human being could be entrusted with this kind of power? And to think about what Jesus did with his power is just evidence of his deity. It's evidence of his glory. Well, this is what happens in the text. I'm going to, if you flip over now on your handout, you'll see where I'm headed. I want, you to sh I want to show you 
how Jesus' power is demonstrated. Then I want to show you how Jesus' power was activated and is activated today. And then finally, we'll look at the purpose of his power. Now, obviously, we're not going to read everything here, but if you look at chapter 8, chapter 9, and all the way to, into, into chapter 10, it's unmistakable. If you survey these chapters, it would probably take you 10 minutes to read this whole text when you go home today. Take you 10 minutes to read chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And you will see this theme of the power of Jesus on display. In fact, if you look at verse number 1 of chapter 8, uh, and I'm going to move through some highlights pretty quickly here, so either follow along on the screen or look at your Bible and maybe make some notes as we go through it. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him. Skip down to verse number 3. Jesus put forth his hand, touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You see that Jesus heals the leper. He touches him. He heals a leper. We, we looked at this in November back when we were in this passage. We looked more carefully at this story. But we go right from the leper to a centurion servant. Verse number five, uh, Jesus was entered into Capernaum and there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And we know what happens in that passage. What does Jesus do for this man's servant? He heals him. So right from the beginning, these miracles recorded, Jesus is demonstrated to have power over what? You tell me, power over sickness and the human body. Jesus is, demonstrates this kind of power. He heals his mo uh, Peter's mother-in-law in verses 14 and 15. I mean, this, this passage just reads like literally event after event after event, like a newsreel just moving quickly through all of these miraculous things Jesus does. If you, were to, if you go home later and you read verse, the rest of it, you'll see that there are demons that are cast out by Jesus in verses 16 and 17. So you've seen already Jesus has power over, Jesus has power over sickness. You see Jesus has power over the demonic hosts. But then you see Jesus has power over nature. Look at verse number 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Verse 27 but the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea, what's the word? Obey, because he has the rule, the authority, the power. He has power over sickness and disease. He has power over the demons. He has power over nature itself. More demons are cast out in verses 28 through 34. If you were to read chapter 9, and we may spend a little bit more time here in the future, but if you were to read chapter 9, you'd see that a little girl is then raised from the dead in verses 18 through 26. 
you'd see that Jesus does not even have to, Jesus does not even have to do anything to heal people because as he's traveling to raise the little girl from the dead, the story goes that they're interrupted by a very sick woman who reaches out and does what? Who remembers the story? She simply touches his clothes. And what happens? She's healed. Then you find in the, the blind and the dumb are healed in verses 27 through 32. And then skip down to chapter 10 with me and look at verse number 1. In Matthew 10, verse 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them what? Power. He gave them authority. He gave them rule. He gave them dominion. This idea of power is emphasized through the miraculous works of Jesus. Now, I want you to make a note of this. People, people get confused about why Jesus did all of these miracles. It seems to me, as an interpretive method of Scripture, that it's pretty clear the purpose for Jesus doing the miracles was to demonstrate His power and authority. Did Jesus heal every sick person in Israel while he was alive? No. Did Jesus cast out every single demon? No, he didn't. And so we should, we should take a lesson from that. In our own personal lives, the situations that we face, listen, is Jesus able to heal you of any disease that you could ever face? Do you believe that, yes or no? Absolutely. And should you pray in faith and should you claim the healing power of Jesus? Of course you should. But on the other hand, has it ever been the pattern of the ministry of Jesus or the apostles to heal every single sickness? It has not been. So we always have to ask ourselves a question, not just what is written, but why is it written? What are we being shown? We are being shown the power and authority of who Jesus is. The focus is not, now we're also shown his compassion. So I, I'm not pretending that I am showing you everything that you can see from this passage today, but I'm trying to show you one of the most important things that you can see from this, that we are being shown the power and authority of Jesus over anything you could possibly imagine, over anything you could possibly face from a human perspective. You're sick, Jesus has power over that. You're dead? <laughs> Doesn't get much worse than that. Jesus has got that one under his control too. There's demons. Jesus has got that under control. It's snowing outside. Jesus could control that. He can. He does control that as well. He's got all power. He's the all-powerful one. Now, the second thing I want you to see is not just how his power is demonstrated, but how his power is activated. So the demonstration of the power of Jesus is found in the miracles. But secondly, how is it activated? This is a theme throughout the passage. It is activated by faith. It is activated by faith. The scriptures say in Hebrews, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. That our relationship with God is entirely based on our ability to believe what he says. So the first theme that you'd see in this passage is, as we said, the demonstration of Jesus' power. But then you find human faith 
trusting in his power. And that's how it's activated. In fact, let's go back through now. Let's work our way back and start eight in chapter 8 again. Look at verse number 2. Look at the leper's faith in verse number 2. Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you desire, if it's your will, Jesus, you can make me clean. He believed. He had faith. Not just that, but this, the centurion. Look at verse number 10. When Jesus heard the centurion's faith, he marveled. Have you noticed how all the wows are in here all throughout the passage too? Marvel, marvel, marvel. Wow. He marveled, and Jesus says to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great, what? Faith, not in Israel. Verse 13, And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast, what? Believed. Little Another Bible study note for those of you that like to study this. The word believe and the word faith in the scriptures are almost always the same Greek word. Different English words, but almost always, not a 100%, but I don't know the percentage. Most of the time when you see in English believe or you see faith, you're looking at the same Greek word. So for instance, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, what's it say, believeth or believes in him, you could just as well substitute believes as saying that whosoever has faith in him. The exact, there was no distinction in the original language between those words. As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. So the centurions, then were pointed actually out the disciples' lack of faith. In verse 26, in the middle of that storm, in the middle of that storm, Jesus says to them, Why are ye fearful? O ye of little faith. Why don't you have faith? And we could, we could spend time there just giving a message on that and trusting Jesus through the storms that we face. If he has all the power, if he has all the ability, there's no need for us to be afraid. Then we see the ruler's faith in chapter 9. Verse, chapter 9, look at verse number 18. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. He had faith that Jesus could do this. The woman had faith that I mentioned earlier in verse number 22 of chapter 9. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort, thy, what's the word? Faith. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. There's blind men who are healed in verse number 28. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Do you believe? Do you believe that I can do this? And they said, Yea, Lord, we believe. Now, again, we could have had a sermon on each of these accounts, and people have done that and done very well. My purpose this morning is, again, to trace the theme through this passage, for you to see what the purpose is, 
What were, what, if you were to just sit down and in one setting, in 10 or 15 minutes, you were just to read this, what would be the overarching message that we should be coming away with? First of all, that Jesus has all power. And second of all, that we need to have what? Faith. We need to believe in him. And isn't it interesting? When Jesus comes, it's never, and this is something that I think needs to be corrected over and over and over again in Christian culture. There is no one who has ever been asked to take a blind leap of faith. You familiar with that expression? A blind leap of faith? And somebody might come to you sometime, they'll be like, well, you know, and I understand what they mean. Faith does involve stepping out in a leap when you can't see all of the specifics, but we are never called to take a blind leap of faith. We are called to take a knowing, confident leap of faith. Because we have been given clear details about the one who we put our faith in. I don't have to know what's going to happen when I step out. But I can be confident in the one who's there to hold me up. There's nothing blind about my faith. I'm, in fact, given, I am given thorough documentation of the one whom I believe in. In the word of God. There's no blind leap of faith. It is a knowledge-filled leap of faith in the one who's capable. That's why there's so much written about Jesus. That's why we're given so much scripture to show us who Jesus is. Four Gospels. Have you ever thought of that? Just in your regular Bible reading, just think about the fact that in your whole New Testament, I always like to do things, you know, like visually. In your whole New Testament, there's just as much... There's just as much, just about, about who Jesus is. Takes up that much. The rest of my New Testament takes up about the same amount. We should spend a lot of time thinking about who he is, what he's done, and how we need to trust him. That's why I try to spend some time in the course of every preaching year in, in some way focused on the Gospels. Because we're given so much about who Christ is. Because he is the one our faith is in. So we've seen this morning this great demonstration of his power in the miracles that he did. Secondly, we're seeing how his power is activated by our faith. But now, this is the most important part. The last part. You're like, wow, you got there pretty quickly today. Is this a new year, a new you? Don't count on it. We have no clue how long this last point could take. We'll see. But we're at the purpose now of his power. Why? Why did he continue to do miracles? Why did he go everywhere? Now, you have to think, too, that there had to be, Jesus had to do a lot of miracles because he needed we needed a lot of witnesses. And in the first century, there's no mass communication. There's no fast way of spreading information. Obviously, there's no technological advancements like we have, but think about it, there's not even a printing press. Like if you wanted somebody to know what happened, you had to write down exactly what happened and deliver it to somebody. 
Now, if you wanted two people to know what happened, you had to write it down two times. If you, okay, I'm done. All right, so you get it. There's no way. So what did Jesus do? Same thing that the apostles would end up doing. In order to spread the message of Christ, they went to different places, different miracles were performed, different teaching happened in all of these different places. So Jesus spends time in Capernaum. He spends time in Jerusalem. He even spends time in Samaria, where most people wouldn't go. And in all of the places Jesus goes in the whole country, he wants people to see his power, and he wants people to see that they can trust him, that they need to put their faith in him. Why? Because Jesus came for a greater purpose than to heal sick people. Jesus came for a greater purpose than to cast out demons. Jesus came for a greater purpose than to feed people miraculously or turn water into wine at a wedding. All of the miracles are simply to bring us to the reason, the purpose for which Jesus came. And that is the forgiveness of our sins. There are many people, and every, every person that finds themselves in a church, or listening to Christian music, or listening to Christian, watching Christian YouTube, or any of that, you need to ask yourself, what is it that I am after in this following Jesus business? What is it that I am after in following Jesus. Because there have always been people who were following Jesus for the benefits of his power. Just like those who will get themselves close to a powerful person at work, or see an opportunity to get into, have a relationship with somebody that can advance their status in life. In the same way, people sometimes follow Jesus for those reasons. And they say, they say, well, I will follow Jesus for, they won't say it out loud, but we act in our hearts, even some of us who are Christians, we, we, we simply look for the benefits of his power first and foremost. We say, well, I will follow Jesus for the miracle that he might be able to work out in my marriage, or for the miracle that he might be able to solve in my financial crisis. I'll follow Jesus for those things, but that is not the purpose for which he came. He came to solve our biggest problem, which is the forgiveness of our sins. Never forget that the greatest thing about following Christ is that you and I can be forgiven of the sins we've committed against God. That is our condition. We are sinful people who have disobeyed God and deserve his righteous judgment. But Jesus came to set us free and to give us forgiveness. And you say, well, I already know that. I already know that. I've been saved. I've trusted Jesus. But if we would remind ourselves frequently of the number one blessing of our salvation is the forgiveness of our sins. Do you think if we reminded ourselves each and every day of how lost we were, but how forgiven we are, do you think that would impact the way we live our lives? If we would start each day saying, thank you, Lord, as the old song says, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. 
Well, that's what happens. Let's finish this morning by focusing in now on the story that we begin with, that tense moment between Jesus, the paralytic, and the scribes. I lost my place, so just give me a second to turn back there. Matthew 9, verse number 1. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing there, oh, here it is again, seeing there what? Faith. He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. Why? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. Now, we would obviously, the unwritten part here is we assume the heart of the man on the bed. We know the faith of the, we know the, faith of the people that brought him, Jesus commends, but he looks at the young man and he says, your sins are forgiven you. Well, what has he done for his sins to be forgiven? What, is he, what act has he performed? We do not given any. It is Jesus showing that he knows, he is demonstrating to the whole group that he knows the heart of the young man lying in the bed, that Jesus knows his heart. And can I just pause here for a minute? There is no human being that can tell you if you are a Christian. I can tell you how to become a Christian. I can tell you what the Bible says, but especially the boys and girls who are in here today, your mom or your dad, teenagers as well, your, your the Sunday school teachers can't tell you, pastor can't tell you, oh yes, you are a Christian. It is only Jesus who can look at your heart and say to you, yes, your sins are forgiven. Only Jesus can forgive your sins. Only Jesus knows your heart. If you've truly repented in your heart, confessed your sins to him, and in your heart you've trusted him as your savior. Only Jesus knows that. And so with no one else in the room knowing what's going on in this young man's life, Jesus looks at him and says, son, cheer up. Be happy. Why? Because your sins are forgiven. What a great message for gloomy Christians. Hey, cheer up. Your sins are forgiven. You have nothing to worry about. The biggest problem that you've ever faced has been taken care of by the one who has all power. So cheer up. But they were a little bit surprised. Now, people would be surprised at this for a couple of reasons. Because... What, was, what were most people expecting Jesus to say to him first? What did they expect him to say? Everybody who's waiting, the friends who brought the sick man, the scribes who sit there and stroke their beards, all of the people there, what were they expecting Jesus to look down and say? Go ahead. What do you think? Be healed. Get up. Walk. You're healed. They're waiting for the miracle but they don't realize that the greatest miracle of all happened when, where no one could see it. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you, and you hear a collective gasp from the beard strokers in the other side of the room. All of a sudden, instead of just looking there judgmentally, ah! 
hear what he just said? He just committed what? He just committed blasphemy. Blasphemy, the worst thing in this culture that you could do. The worst sin that you could commit was the sin of blasphemy. Now, why? Why do they say he's committed blasphemy? Well, read on. And this, again, gives us an awesome clue into who Jesus is. This man blasphemeth, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, boy, what a way to correct them. So they don't even say it out loud yet. So I shouldn't have dramatized it that way. It should have just been thought cloud, blasphemy. Without them saying a word, not a single word, Jesus says what they are all thinking in the moment. Why do you think so evil in your heart? Is it easier for me to say, thy sins be forgiven thee? Or, arise and walk. Now, if you read this in, I think, Mark's gospel, they, they do say, who can forgive sins except for God? If you read the account in Mark's gospel, it's a bigger, it's a bigger clue to the divinity of Jesus here, the deity of Jesus. But here we're just focused on this part in, in Matthew and Jesus says, which is easier for me? He gives them a riddle. And Jesus would always propose these questions, these riddles, so that, and, and if you've ever, when I was a kid, I always struggled reading the Gospels. You know, I'd try to read my Bible, and, you'd, it, you know, Paul was confusing, but at least he, he made his point directly. The Old Testament was the easiest because it's just cool stories all put together. And then you get to Jesus, and my 12 or 13-year-old brain was just like, why doesn't he just say what he means? Why does he just come out and say it? And so somebody finally explained it to me that, that what you're given is the, the slow and steady account of Jesus slowly explaining to everyone who he was. He couldn't just come on the scene and say, hey, y'all, I'm God. Right? They would have, that would have brought him directly to stoning right away. He just gives clues. In fact, he gets to the point where he would say to Peter that it's, it's not any human being that can show you who I am. It's only God who can show you who I am. So he, he gives him this riddle. Which is easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Well, which is easier? The question is never answered. Which do you think is easier? A or B? Thy sins are forgiven or arise and walk? That's A. Your sins are forgiven is A, arise and walk is B, which is easier to say, A or B? <laughs> How many say A? A is easier to say. My dad raised his hand, that's it. How many say B is easier to say? Okay, because you're all theologians, right? You're looking at this, you're like, well, it's easier for someone to be healed than for them to have all of their sins forgiven. But Jesus does say, which is easier for me to just say? He doesn't say which is easier to do. He says, which is easier to say? So I'm going to agree. I think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because if you say arise and walk, everybody knows. Like, for instance, if I said to you, Josiah, bless you, my son, your sins are forgiven you. That was easy for me to say. But how many of you could, could you tell if his sins are forgiven or not? No, but 
if you, were, if you couldn't walk, and I said, okay, you're healed. Well, then he would have to stand up and walk in front of you all. So how do you know? The whole point of this is how do you know Jesus is teaching them? It's easy to say your sins are forgiven, but I want you to know that it happened. And the evidence, the proof that his sins are forgiven are seen in what? In the next statement, stand up and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He says, I want you to know that I have the power to what? Forgive. Wait a minute. The whole message is all coming together now. I want you to know that I have the what? What's the word? Power. The power. In other words, I am going to do the miracle to show my power so that you will know that I have the real power to what? Forgive sins. To forgive sins. And so very non-dramatically, with great understatement, he turns to the, to the young man, he says, stand up, pick up your bed, and go walk. I'm not ready for that scripture yet. He says, stand up, pick up your bed, and go home. And it's like, I just love the non-dramatic way that he does it. Because he's already accomplished the greatest miracle that could ever be done. Your sins are forgiven. So now I want you to, Come on now, stand up, pick up your bed, and go home. Go home healed. But better than going home healed, go home forgiven. He'll go home forgiven. This is why the miracles were done. Now, I want you, a couple of, couple of things here. If you need a miracle in your life right now, pray for it. Pray for a breakthrough. Believe it. I am not one of those Christians that says that would say, nope, God can't do any miracles. There, every single miracle is done. Nothing, nothing extraordinary ever happens. No, God is still in the miracle business. He can still do a great thing in your life, a miraculous thing in your life. If you need a financial miracle, if you need a health miracle, if you need a relational miracle, just believe God. But also understand that his miracle, any great thing he does in your life, is not to, ultimately to solve your physical situation. It's to show you who he is so that you'll believe him for your spiritual salvation. That's what it's about. And so if God never does the breakthrough miracle that you're praying for, it's okay. Be of good cheer because your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You see, Jesus' ultimate power is over our greatest enemy, sin and death. So be careful of Christian movements that are always advancing the supernatural, that are always pointing to, they always want miracles, and they always want supernatural manifestations, and they always want some physical sign. The signs in the scriptures serve the purpose of showing us who Jesus was so that our souls could be saved by him. Jesus' ultimate power, again, is over our greatest enemy, and that great enemy is sin and death. There's one really cool passage that I want to finish with. It's 1 Corinthians 15. We'll put it up on the screen now. 1 Corinthians 15. Then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up, this is speaking of Jesus, 
when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. This is fast forwarding us now to the future, the very end, the end of the age as we know it, when Jesus returns and Jesus is victorious and he's going to take back the kingdom of this world, he's going to bring it to the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and what? Power. For he must reign, verse 25, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Praise the Lord. Praise God. And he shall reign forever. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So what I'll leave you with this morning is this. If you are not a Christian, I mean, if you've never had a life-changing moment where you repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, that is your greatest need. Whether you're in this room or you're watching our live stream today, if you have never believed in Jesus as your Savior, that's what his power is for. It's to save you of your sins. That's your greatest enemy, is death and hell. Believe on Christ today. You say, well, what do I have to do? Believe. Yeah, but, but what thing do I have to do? Just believe. You can express it with a prayer. The Bible says that if you will believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. So if you will say, Lord, I do know, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I'm lost and guilty, but I believe that you died for me and rose again. That's salvation. It's repenting of sin and believing in Jesus. If you'll make that prayer to God, the Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If there's any doubt in your mind that your sins are forgiven by the power of Jesus, just trust him today. That's all that's left to be done. It's just have faith and believe that he'll save you. It's not about being religious. It's not about going to church. It's not about any of those things. It's just believing the power of Jesus to save you. So if you've never done that, in just a minute, I'll lead us in a prayer, and that's an opportunity for you to put your faith in Christ. But if you'd say, Ethan, I've done that. I know that my sins are forgiven. Well, Maybe as we start this new year, Maybe we just need to reset our focus each and every day to say, Jesus, I know I come to you for a lot of things. I need you for my health, my finances, my family, my relationships, my job, all these things I come to you for, but I just want to start by thanking you that my sins are forgiven. Let's bow our heads for a prayer, time of prayer right now, with heads bowed and eyes closed to the first individual or group of people. If you're not sure that you've ever given your life to Christ, you're not sure that you've truly believed, why don't you do that with me right now? Just pray something like this. If you're ready right now, pray this prayer, something like this. Say, Dear Lord, Dear Lord, I admit to you that I'm a sinner and I am lost and guilty. I need to be saved. Jesus, I believe that your death and your resurrection are the power to save me. So I believe in you today. 
I'm not trusting myself. I trust in you and you alone. Jesus, please save me. If you've never done that, do it right now in this quiet moment. Trust Christ wherever you are. Christians, let's just take the last minute here and just have a quiet, prayerful time where we just reset our focus on the power of Jesus. We recommit to Him our gratitude, our thankfulness, and ask Him to change. Maybe you've been living, maybe you've been a little bit selfish about the power of Jesus. Maybe you're using His power for yourself. And just dedicate right now, Lord, that, that I'm yours this year. Thank you for your power, your power to save me, your power to change me. Let's just have a quiet, prayerful moment, and then our singers will come and we'll close in worship. God, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the power that he has and that he has demonstrated. Lord, the power that he, Lord, shows in our lives. God, I pray that we would be a people of faith, that our lives would be characterized by faith, faith in what Jesus has done for us, faith in what you have done. Lord, that we live, live each and every day trusting in you, not just for our salvation, but Lord, for our daily lives, for that we'd walk with you, that, Lord, you'd continue to change us and work in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that one day you will put all principalities and powers and all enemies under your feet, Lord, that every wrong would be made right, and that you will reign forever and ever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You could also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.